0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, last week we tried to bite off an elephant and discovered you really can't bite off an elephant in one sitting. So today we're going to work on what my dad used to call LBs. Little bites, Charlie, little bites. (laughs) So we're going to look at Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. This is the first of the four servant songs that all point to the Messiah, to Jesus. This first servant song actually goes through verse 9, but we're just going to focus on the first four verses. Let's give attention to God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in this law. We ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. We ask that you'd satisfy us here in your presence with your steadfast love. Pray that you would illuminate this text, and also, Lord, just draw us to Jesus, for we need him, for we are easily weary, easily heavy burdened, may we come afresh to him to find rest for our souls. Minister to us this word in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we see here is that Jesus is the he. He is what appears at the end of verse 1. We get this. We start off with all these personal pronouns, but then we get to the third person at the end of verse 1. We're introduced that he will bring forth justice to the nations. And we see that how he's going to bring it, he's going to bring it in faithfully. And we're told who he's going to bring it to. He's bringing it to the nations. And then a play on words in the Hebrew, the word nations and coastland is very similar. He's bringing it to the ends of the world. He's bringing justice to all the people groups. And what's interesting is that he doesn't bruise or become the faintly burning wick. And so he will not grow faint, verse For, or be discouraged, growing faint is the same as faintly burning wick in Hebrew, and the discouraged is the same as bruised, and so he's not going to be what we are. We easily get tired, we easily get worn out, not Jesus. He's going to do this in a way that he doesn't get tired. He's going to bring this to the ends of the earth. What's interesting in reality is our culture screams for justice, One of the first things your kids learn as a very young age is they learn a phrase that you will hear often, and that phrase is, see if you can fill it in, that's not, (laughs) and boy we learn that at a really young age because we just have this acute sense of justice, right? And our culture is screaming for justice, a matter of fact you can't watch the news for any news segment you could watch for a half hour or read the news, the top articles, just read it in the lens of justice because those are the kind of the things, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. It's the idea of the, the culture is crying out for justice. Yesterday's justice issue is should the parents be charged with some type of lower level murder charge as being accomplices in this awful school shooting in Michigan this past week? The week before that, we had three big trials that were before uh, us as a country. Two were uh, extremely uh, new. The other was, I'll get to it in a second, but you have the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, and that really was <clears throat> polarizing uh, Americans. And then you had the Ahmad Arbery trial, and people are crying out for justice. And then you had Kevin Strickland, who was released and acquitted after wrongly serving 43 years of a murder conviction in which he was innocent. And the issue before the, the Supreme Court this week is a justice issue related to how should babies be treated in the womb in the state of Mississippi. And then, you know, we have this lingering uh, issue with Alec Baldwin and who's responsible for killing this cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, in the on site of making this movie rust and Alec has gone on record and saying that he did not pull the trigger, that it was a cold gun, he was instructed it was a cold gun, he was doing the walkthrough, he cocked the gun, and when he let his thumb off the cock, it shot, and he never pulled a trigger. The difficulty with situations like this is that we're all crying out for justice, but there's two different types of justice, at least two. You have retributive justice, and restorative justice, right? You have retributive, which is basically punishment. And so often it's hard to bring about both. Retributive justice, restorative justice. In the Arbery murder trial, it seemed pretty obvious, at least the optics were, did not look good of these men hunting down this black uh, young man and shooting and killing him. And so they were convicted of murder and they went to jail to serve this retributive justice deserving to pay for their crime. However, there's no restorative justice in this conviction. The parents don't get their son back. And even if those in authority can figure out who's responsible for the death of Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer, there could be retributive justice, but once again, there's no restorative justice. A mother, a wife, has been taken out. If somebody burns down your house and they might go to jail for arson, you don't get your house back. Someone steals your priceless painting, you not only want them to be convicted of the crime, you want your painting back. That's restorative justice. And I was touched to see, and I'm sure many of you saw, that the state of Missouri has these very strict compensation laws. And when Kevin Strickland, who had done over 42 years of serving this murder, of which he was completely innocent, he doesn't get a dime from the state in restorative justice. But over 28,000 people got on the Internet and went to the GoFundMe account and raised $1.6 million so far. And now the question is, is how much is going to go to Uncle Sam? You know, <laughs> But that's a little piece of restorative justice, even though you can't restore all the years that he's paid in prison. But at least he has a little retirement account now. A little, little piece of restorative justice. Justice. Well, it begs the question, is the Messiah bringing restorative justice, or is he bringing retributive justice? Or could he somehow be one who brings both? And when is he bringing the judgment? In the first advent, in his first coming, or in his second advent, when he comes again? Well, we'll wrestle with those questions, and I want you to think through those as we look at this text. So look look at this text. So we consider this text. You can't help but see lots of re- repetition in this text. There's a lot of pronouns. There are several he will promises and there are several he will not promises. And I think the he will nots are even more amazing than the he wills. But first of all, who is speaking in verse 1? Behold. That means look. Stop and consider. Behold my servant whom I uphold and whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. That's God the Father speaking. God the Father is declaring his affection and his love for his son. That should sound like somewhere in the New Testament, right? At Jesus' baptism, right? He's, he pours out his love and he, and he says with, a, with affection, this is my beloved son. And then he says at the transfiguration, once again, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You see, all the pronouns are first person until we get introduced to the him and the he pronouns at the end of verse 1. And what you see in verse 1 is the Trinity. Do you see the Trinity in verse 1? God the Father is speaking, declaring His affection for His Son, for His Messiah. And God is pouring, pouring out His Spirit, my Spirit, upon Him. That's the Holy Spirit. You say, where's the Trinity in the Bible? Well, it's actually all over the place, but Isaiah 42 would be a big one, 42:1. one And then you say, well, then who's the He and the Him? And we often, we've been looking at these on Sunday nights and Nathaniel Carr did a good job last week of going through the servant songs. And we get tripped up a little bit on who is the servant because if you look at 42.19, we realize the servant is Israel. And he says, who is blind but my servant? And I can tell you, Jesus isn't blind. You see, he comes to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus is the servant, Messiah, sent to the servant Israel. Israel. You see, the reason why this had to be was because Israel, the first servant, has failed. Israel was to be a light for the nations, verse 6. But someone else is going to come and be the light of the world because Israel has failed. And we see in verse 18 and that, that 19 that Israel is blind and deaf and in need of another servant who will come and save the servant. And if Israel is anything in this servant's song, Israel is the bruised reed and the smoldering wick that the servant has come to rescue. And God is setting his affection upon his Messiah to come and save the servant Israel. And so that is what Jesus has come to do. The Messiah is on a mission, and we are told specifically what he will do and what he will not do. And these are wonderful and amazing promises. We're told he will bring forth justice to the nations, End of verse 1. He will faithfully bring forth justice. End of verse 3. And he's bringing about this justice, making things right. And it says how he's not going to do this. We see that he will not. He will not cry out or lift up his voice. He's not bringing forth justice through speaking louder than everybody else or through controlling opinions in the public sphere. He's not going to bring forth justice through intimidation tactics. He's not a blowhard. Okay, you want a rough translation? There it is. He's not a narcissistic leader who needs to be heard all the time. That's not how he's going to bring about his kingdom as the king. You see, completely different. He comes as a servant. And so Isaiah forty-two, one to four, is quoted in Matthew twelve, and the New Testament clearly says this passage is Jesus the Messiah. In case you had doubts about it, or if you think you 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 know you're wondering, this is where the apostle's testimony is that we're not wiser than Matthew. And Matthew is is an apostle and he's an inspired writer of the scriptures. And he writes in Matthew 12 and he tells us about Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're angry with Jesus. They're trying to accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker and in violation of the law of Moses. And they want to accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker. And Jesus responds by asking a question. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand man stretched it out and it was restored. Restorative justice. Restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees were not happy. They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, how to kill him. It's funny, they didn't want to violate the Sabbath or do any work. They were looking like they were getting pretty busy with some work. They're they're busy plotting how to murder They're definitely violating the fourth commandment as well as the sixth. But they're plotting how to kill him, and Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, i.e. Isaiah 42, 1-4, Behold my servant. In whom I've chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Bruised reed he will not break, smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so Jesus heals this man with a withered hand by restoring the hand, making it right again. And this man's hand is restored. The authorities, trying to hinder this wholeness and healing from occurring, because they were interpreting the law in ways that hindered mercy and love and actually shutting down people and keeping good deeds out and actually help and good people being helped, good people are, are kept from experiencing good. And Jesus is making it clear and bringing forth justice that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so not only does he restore this man's hand, but then he, he goes on the DL. He goes on the down low. And he has a little, little mission for the people that he heals. He tells them, keep this on the DL. Keep it on the down low. Don't tell everybody about this. It's the great messianic secret because if you, when I restore you, if, if all that this is talked about is, is the physical healing, then I'm going to become you know, this, this one trick pony that everybody's just going to stand in line for their healing. He had other things to do as well in bringing about his kingdom. And so what we see is that Jesus' ministry was not done for to draw crowds. He served others. Jesus' ministry was also quiet and deliberate and unassuming. I mean, Jesus could have done cloud writing. He could have done fire displays. He could have jumped off the temple. But how is the servant portrayed in Isaiah? He's portrayed as a lamb going to the slaughter, one who doesn't even open his mouth. It's a very interesting thing for us to think about because the sermon title, Is This a King?, Or is this a servant? Could it be both? You see, and then we're given these two precious promises. The two, he will not. Let's kind of drill down on those. We're told about the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. There's gold here, so let's do a little mining. You see, the idea of a crushed reed or a bruised reed is this it's a damaged reed in an agrarian term a farmer who has a reed that's cracked sideways and bruised it means translation it's useless it's time to keep going and look for food from other good reeds because this reed is done it's no bueno You write it off, you discard it. And a faintly burning wick is a candle that's hardly putting out any light. The wick is so dim, that it's creating so many shadows, it's best just to blow this one out and not even bother with it, move on. And that's what the world does, is it just moves on. And eventually we become a speed bump on the face of progress, and we just get discarded. And the idea is that Jesus comes for those very people. That's the good news of Advent. He comes for the faint-hearted, he comes for those who doubt, those who are depressed, those who are discouraged, those who've been sinned against, those who've been abused, those who've been beaten, those who have been beaten up by their own sinful choices, those who are wounded, you who are grieved. By your lifestyle and mistakes that you've made. Those who are all about out of hope. You see, Jesus wants you to know, this Lord's table this morning is for you. He came to save sinners and to seek and save the lost. It's only the bruised who come to Jesus. And the reality is we are a culture that is bruised. Just listen to these stats. From 1960 to the turn of the 21st century, America has doubled in divorce rate, tripled in teen suicide rate, quadrupled in violent crime rate, quintupled its prison population, sextupled out of wedlock births, subtupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which is a good indicator, a predictor of divorce. We are a people that are making foolish lifestyle choices, and we pay dearly. The consequences. My favorite quote from the Gentle and Lowly book, which, and I hope you're reading the deeper book because it's really good too. They're just so full of love that you realize Jesus really does love his church. But my favorite quote is, the, is on page 29 of the book, where he says, The cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. It's a little different than us so often, but as he changes our hearts, he makes us those kind of people too. You see, here's the point. The Messiah is on a mission. He doesn't come to recruit the strong, but to rescue the weak, as the reflection quote brings out. And if you're honest with yourself, and if you're listening to your conscience, and maybe your conscience is beating you over the head, do you feel like this strong reed that's bearing all kinds of fruit for God, and you're this bright burning candle that doesn't need a Messiah to rescue you? Or have you been injured? By the brokenness of this world? And have you contributed to the brokenness in this world by your own brokenness? That we too have hurt others, and others have hurt us. And then we see ourselves as people who don't measure up to God's law. It's like as a kid, you know, I was always short and I always wanted to ride the big rides. And, and, and it was always this person standing there, you know, and he was always a lot taller than me. And they'd say, you know, you can't ride the roller coaster until you're, you know, 48 inches tall or something. And I'm just like, I don't measure up. And they'd say, sorry, you know, you, you can't do it. Well, that, that's where we all stand before God's word and God's law is that we don't measure up. Our hearts are full of coveting. There's greed in our hearts. There's lust, and there's worry, and there's fear, and there's anger, and then there's bitterness, things that leave us undone before God, and we we come as weary and heavy, burdened people in need of rest for our souls. And what does Jesus say? Come to me. Come to me. You see, this is such good news for us, the body. Jesus loves bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. He went all the way through Samaria to find this Samaritan woman. He had to go find her. She's finding her identity in serial dating and serial husbands and she needs to find the lover of her souls that would set her free from her bondage of sin of loving men more than God. You see, the love of Jesus, as Dortland says in his book Gentle and Lowly, doesn't compare to the greatest romance in the world. It's just a faint whisper in comparison because it's so much better. Jesus had to find that woman and he had to save her. And Jesus had to find Zacchaeus. He had to come to his house. He had to set this man free from his bondage to wealth and money. And how Zacchaeus was just gaining his foothold in this world more and more as he stepped on his fellow brothers and sisters in Israel. Just step on a little bit, exploiting them, taking advantage of them so he could improve his material standing in this world. You see, Zacchaeus had a problem of not being able to love anyone without seeing dollar signs. He saw dollar signs in front of him. They were denarii signs. And he was using others to get what he wanted, which was wealth. And Jesus comes along and he helps Zacchaeus to see that you're a bruised reed, Zacchaeus, bruised and broken by the fall. And when Zacchaeus experiences the love of Jesus, he makes him a very generous person as he's changed by this person, by Jesus. You see, Jesus brings good news to the poor, the disenfranchised, the discarded, the disregarded, the dist. This is who Jesus came for. And in doing so, he's bringing forth justice. And every mountain and hill is made low that we sing about in Handel's Messiah. And every valley is exalted. Well, what does that mean? The mountains of pride and personal exaltation of self is brought low. He who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself and is the valley is exalted. And every valley gets exalted. The uneven ground becomes level at the foot of the cross and the glory of the Lord gets revealed at Golgotha, the hill of the skull where Jesus is going to bring justice to the nations. And how is he going to do it? In a retributive justice. That he himself will take the retribution. He becomes the bruised reed bruised and crushed for our iniquities. To step on that serpent and to crush its head also meant to be bit by that poisonous snake and killed by it even though others get saved. Jesus is presented as this servant in Isaiah who's beaten, who's mocked, who's spit on, whose beard is pulled out, who's marred beyond recognition as the lamb going to the slaughter. Is that how you envision a big king to come and cry out and and make his, his kingdom known? Well, Jesus doesn't do that in his first advent. It's called the kingdom of grace. But if you want to look at the kingdom of glory, well, if you look over at verses 14 and following, same chapter, he does begin to cry out and he does begin to lay waste and turn rivers into islands and dry up pools. He is going to come in glory. And when he does come in glory, he's bringing retribution again. But he's also bringing restorative justice. He's going to make all things Right. And as his kingdom comes breaking into this world, as he comes in the flesh, he does bring restorative justice. But retribution will come. And the reality is we all deserve the retributive justice of God to fall on us. And Jesus takes the punishment. He takes the blows that were meant for us. And he stands in and takes it all. Why? Well, Isaiah is very clear. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. Individually, collectively. And so is he a servant or is he a king? Perhaps more telling of our hearts this morning. Is he your servant or is he your king? You see, if this passage is done its surgery on our hearts, we become like Jonathan in front of David. We resign any thoughts or ideas of being king anymore. We strip off our princely garments. We give them to the king who's conquered someone much more powerful than Goliath. And we say, you're king. You're king forever and I will serve you. And these kings we, we, we become servants who bow before the king and these faint little burning wicks and these bruised reeds he restores and gentles them as they find their place in the family. It's good news. So we come to the Lord's table this morning. I want to remind you of the best part of the prodigal son story. You remember the imagery that the son has squandered all the father's wealth, spent it on harlots, wild living, and now he's hungry and he's eating what the pigs eat. Smelling like pigs, eating what they eat. It's not good. He says, even my father's servants are better fed. I'll go home. The father sees him a long way off. The father runs to his son. He runs to him embraces him and kisses him and he loves him and what does he do it's restorative he restores him to his family status bring quickly the best robe he says to his servants bring quickly I love the adverb Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. That's what we're going to do in just a minute. We are going to eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. That was me. That was you. And is alive again. He was lost. He's found. And they began to celebrate as we celebrate at the Lord's table of being restored to him. Guess who out-celebrates? The angels in heaven celebrate, yes. The Father celebrates, the Son celebrates, the Spirit celebrates. It is a celebration. This is a foretaste of the feast to come, of full restoration, of which the the prodigal son story is just opening a door to show us how great and marvelous it's going to be. It will happen. Will you be part of it? Have you given Jesus your sins? Have you recognized you're the problem and he is the eternal solution for salvation, for rest for your souls? Come to him. Come to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the Messiah. There is none like you. You are the only one that is fit and able to bring justice to the nations. How we praise you that you did it by becoming weak and taking our sins. And we thank you that you nailed them to the cross, triumphing over powers that would bring accusation against us. And now we can cry out that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, now as we come to your table... For your people, I pray that you would feed your people, that you would minister your grace, that you would remind us of all that we have in Jesus, for we ask in your name. Amen. I hope that you got a, a packet, a communion packet on the, on the way in. if not, uh-oh, am I still on? I've just caught... If you didn't get one of those, you need, to, you need to grab one of those. This is just, let me just remind you, this is the Lord's table. This is not the table of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. It's the Lord's table. And we come at his bidding. He's welcomed us to come, all who are his, who love him in sincerity and in truth. If you've never surrendered and given your life to Jesus, then we ask that you'd refrain from the elements and give him your heart. And come and join the church and be a part of God's people. And then you'll be welcomed to the table. But here are the good news. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you're the king and head of the church. May you receive the preeminence and the glory, for you are worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We praise you. We thank you that you're bringing this kingdom to all people groups, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. And so, Lord, may we as your people love every tribe, every tongue, every people. May your heart be our heart, and we ask that you would enlarge these small hearts Help us to think of weighty matters of glory that matter. Wean us from trivial things that are of no consequence. Help us to live lives that would redeem the time for the days are evil. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.